remember that old Bonnie Tyler song? Uh, what's it called? Holding Out for a Year. Classic, 1984. You guys remember that? What movie was that in? Do you remember? Footloose? Any, any fans of Footloose? Who was, was it? Kevin Bacon, right? I've never seen it, so I don't know how Kevin Bacon danced his way to be the hero in the movie, but I trust that he did it. I'm getting some nods. He definitely did it, okay? But the, the lines from the song, I remember the song well. Uh, where have all the good men gone, and where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? I need a hero. And he's got to be strong, he's got to be fast, he's got to be fresh for the fight. I need a hero. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon. We celebrate heroes. The hero figure um, across all cultures, and in many different ways, that the hero figure is celebrated through song and story and myth and in legend. Humanity longs for a hero. And what, what does the hero do? What is the, the function of the hero figure? The hero comes in and he tames the disorder of a situation. He swoops in and he rescues those who are afflicted in some way. Single-handedly, the hero imposes justice in an unjust system. And he rescues those who are afflicted. He creates, um, by the sheer strength of his of his will, or his planning, or his cunning, or just his, um, his physical ability, he creates order and consistency in a situation that is somehow chaotic. Every hero story has that those same elements within it. And why, why throughout all time has humanity longed for the hero and celebrated the hero figure and written stories and myths and legends and movies and books about the hero. The reason we do it is because that situation in which the hero swoops in is the situation that we all find ourselves in every day, sometimes in varying degrees, but we recognize the need. We long for the hero, and we recognize that we're not, we can't do it. Despite our best efforts, we can't bring the order to the disorder. We cannot rescue those who are afflicted. Despite our best efforts, we cannot save ourselves. And so we long for a hero. And the gospel provides us, points to that hero, Jesus Christ, the ancient hero, the one who all humanity needs. And those of us that have found Christ, we seek to introduce others to that hero because we know that he can redeem their life and change their story. Unfortunately, there's many followers of Christ that sometimes are frustrated because they forget that they're still in the middle of the story. They think, I got saved, and that's the end of the story. Why am I still living in a situation that seems to require a hero? The reason is because we haven't got to the end of the story yet. And so, God graciously has provided us different hero figures throughout the Old Testament as types, as pictures. They, they have hero stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end so that we can look back from the middle that we're in. We can see how it started. We can recognize where we are in the middle. But then we have hope for the end and the shortly coming. We know that God brings about every hero story to a conclusion. And the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ, will bring about 
to the story that we find ourselves in. But we have to remind ourselves by looking back at different hero figures in the Old Testament. And who strikes a better hero pose than David? David was the quintessential hero throughout Israel. And today we're going to look specifically at David's anointing. And we're going to just pull out elements and we're going to look at parallels and see what we can learn about Jesus Christ and what how that affects us. And so we're going to look at three elements uh, in David's life, kind of the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we're going to see what we can learn from that. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as we do this, I just want to make sure that um, it's, it's recognized that sometimes it's hard to distinguish between legitimate Christological types in the Old Testament. And maybe sometimes we, we're just looking at recurring biblical themes. Um, the hero story that's repeated again and again has certain themes. And so we want to be careful that as we look into David's life and we are reminded of Jesus... You know, when we do this, we're making observations that may or may not be types of Christ. Maybe they're just themes that are repeated. And so we're careful not to build decisive doctrines off of our observations, but rather um, we kind of wick out truths from our observations and make sure that they're tied specifically to clear instruction from God's Word and that we're, we're believing the things that we're sure of and just observing the things that... Um, remind us of the truths that are later taught about Christ in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. And first I want to look at um, David anointed. When he is anointed. Now this is David's a young man. Saul has been king and failed. Samuel the prophet has really kind of been co-leading with Saul. And then God removed his spirit from King Saul. And Samuel is quite discouraged, and in verse 1 it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, I have, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, You come peaceably. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So I want to observe just a few notes here in David's anointing. First of all, notice that it was divinely appointed. Oftentimes, king would be anointed, but this is specific because God was the one who initiated David was not the one that was vying for the throne. Samuel was not even the one that wanted to see that this was done. It was God that divinely appointed him. Notice the words in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, where he says, um, I will send to you Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 
God says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This reminds me of the passage we looked at last week in Ezekiel, where, um, where God bemoans the fact that there's no leaders that will lead his people well. So finally he says, Behold, I, I myself will search out my sheep, and I will seek them out. As for as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. So this, again, this is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. There are no sufficient um, leaders, and so God either does it himself, or he pulls out a leader for himself. Another example of this is in Isaiah chapter 59. I turn there really quickly, you'll recognize, it sounds familiar, this is essentially the Old Testament version of the armor of God, Isaiah chapter 59. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and a righteousness upheld him. He put on a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So there's no one here to deliver my people. God says, I'm going to do it myself. Now note these last words. These are going to become important later. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. So just let that sit for a minute. But right now, notice there was no one, so God is the one that orchestrates it. It was divinely appointed. Also, not only divinely appointed, but in David's anointing, we see he was divinely empowered. Verse 3, it says, um, I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Anointing is where they would pour the oil over the head of the anointed one. This happened in Exodus to the priests, where God was symbolically saying, I'm pouring my power into specifically my spirit upon you. We know this is true because when David then is later anointed in verse 13, you see Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So we see the symbolism of not only was David divinely appointed, he was divinely empowered. And we see in Christ's life the same divine appointment and empowerment. In the book of Luke, we see um, when he gets baptized, he is anointed with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit descends upon him. It says in verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. 
And then Jesus begins his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Another passage says he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then he comes back from the wilderness, having been tempted by Satan and overcoming the temptation. says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So at least the writer of Luke is making it very clear that Jesus was not just coming and doing it. He had the power of the Holy Spirit upon him from the time of his anointing by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll and he goes to a place in the Old Testament and he reads this passage from the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what Jesus has done here is we see the recorded, the Holy Spirit came upon him, anointed him, all of a sudden now he's working and ministering in the unique power of the Holy Spirit, and then his first sermon public, he declares, this is the anointing of the Messiah I have upon me. So we see that in Jesus' life, we see it in David's life, divinely appointed, divinely empowered, but most of all, and this is what we almost always remember from this passage, least expected, least expected. In second, in First Samuel sixteen, uh, verse six, when they came, they looked on Eliab and thought, "Surely the Lord's anointed is before him." But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." And one by one, they go through all the sons of of uh, um, uh, what's his name. You know, Sorry? Jesse, thank you. Each one, surely this is the one. No, it's not him. Surely this is the one. No, that's not him. Finally, Samuel says, are there any others? So confident with everyone in the situation that David was not the chosen one, David wasn't even invited to the ceremony. Because surely David's not the one. Verse 11. Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the smallest. Behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy in his eyes, so he's redhead, he had beautiful eyes, he was handsome, he's kind of a pretty boy. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So it was the least expected. And this too is true of Jesus. We see it true in the Gospels. Remember after his resurrection, he's in the garden. He was confused for the garden. In um, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, it says, No form or majesty, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Remember when Philip shared the news of Jesus with Nathaniel? He says, come and see, we found the Messiah. And remember what Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The least expected. We see it in David's life, we see it in Christ's life, and it's still true today in Christ's life. The solution that we all need, that you need, is often overlooked. The one hero that we most need is the one that we kind of 
make a difference in my marriage, but I need something more practical than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with sin, but I don't know, how, how, how is reading the life of Jesus going to change that? Or people that don't know Christ at all, can't even imagine that this Jew from 2,000 years ago now, I need something more current than that. Or maybe I need something more ancient than that. But he's always overlooked, even though he is the one and solitary solution to all of our problems. So we see all of this in David's anointing. Next, and, and this was this was a left turn for me in my studies because I, I was planning on just preaching all from this passage here, but then I did a little bit of study and digging on not just David's uh, David anointed, but the kingdom delayed. The kingdom delayed. We have a lot to learn from what happened in between David's secret anointing and then his public inauguration. First of all, it was much longer than expected. Much longer than expected. Fifteen years took place between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel, where David, I think 2 Samuel chapter 3 or 4, where David is finally inaugurated as king of Judah. And then once he was king of Judah, it took another seven and a half years before he became crowned king of Israel, uniting the kingdom again. So we have over 20 years from the time of this anointing before he was actually functioning as king of Israel. During that time, he was on the run. He was hiding in forests. He was hiding in caves. His fame grew, and as his fame grew, so did Saul's rage. David gathered men around him. He became kind of a, uh, a guardian for hire of farmers and people in the land. He fought the enemies of Israel. At other times, he essentially became a mercenary for the Philistines, so long as the Philistines' enemy was the same uh, enemy as Israel. But in all this time, he was waiting, waiting, waiting. And we see this today as well. We see Jesus, in the Gospels, we see Jesus anointed as the Messiah. And now we're living in the interim. We're waiting for the time when he's finally going to be crowned king, assume the throne of David, and rule on this earth. But we're living in that in-between, that 15 to 25 year period in David's life where he knew who he was, but he didn't act upon it yet. He was waiting for God's timing. And in this delayed kingdom, he chose not to exercise his royal rights. In that time, David chose not to exercise his royal rights. He was serving in Saul's house. So he was actually in the royal uh, palace. And yet, he was serving the king that didn't have a right to the throne. He was surviving the attacks that Saul um, inflicted upon his life. He was fighting Saul's battles for him. He would go out. After, after he slayed Goliath, he was known as a warrior. And then they started writing songs about how many more people Saul, uh, David had killed than Saul. So he was living in the palace. He was fighting Saul's battles. He uh, spared Saul's life multiple times, even though he had, he had the right. He could have taken Saul's life because God had already anointed David as king, and yet he refused to do it. And we see this most clearly um, described in 2 Samuel 
chapter, Second uh, Samuel chapter three, and verse thirty-nine, where David describes this situation. Uh, it's a little complex, but basically, as the time grows near and near, and Saul loses favor with his people, um, one of Saul's right-hand men, Abner, decides to double-cross Saul. And he decides to try to unite the kingdom between David uh, in Judah and he's going to give him Israel uh, in the south or in the north, I mean. And one of David's right hand men murders this guy that's going to help David take the throne. And David responds by mourning. He responds by having sorrow for the death of what was his enemy. And he did the same thing when Saul died. When Saul died, he wrote a, a, a song. Um, that honored Saul's life. And David made this statement in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 39. He says, I was gentle today, though anointed king. I think what, a, what a great description of exactly what we see Christ doing right now. He's gentle, though he's anointed king. He will not remain gentle forever. We're going to see him coming with robes dipped in blood. We're going to see him coming in battle array, but right now, Christ is gentle in the interim, even though he is king. And then one last observation about this kingdom delay, and this is interesting. I don't know how significant it is or not, but it stuck out to me. One of the things that David did during the time between his anointing and when he actually took the throne, he acquired a bride for himself. And he did it in an unusual way. Normally there was a dowry that would have to be paid. And Saul offered David one of his daughters, but he says, I don't need a dowry. Instead, I want you to kill X number of Philistines. So David acquired a bride by killing the enemies. And maybe it's a stretch, but it reminds me of what Christ is doing right now. In the interim, between Christ's anointing and his taking his rule over the earth, he is acquiring a bride for himself. You and I, the church, is gathering her to himself, destroying the enemy in the process. So we see David anointed, we see the kingdom delayed, and then finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see, finally, the throne claimed. In chapter 3, he becomes uh, the king over Judah, but it's not until chapter 5, seven and a half years later, that he becomes king over Israel. Each time he is anointed by the men in the kingdom. And here, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, in verse 1, we get some interesting details. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. That's speaking of referencing the battle, the wars. Even though Saul was king, David was the one that was leading them in battle. And the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people, and you shall be prince or a leader over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to, uh, to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. 30 years old, anointed as a child, reigned then the rest of his life. 
But what we see here when David finally claims the throne over Israel and Judah, we see that a covenant was cut. A covenant was made from David to those he was ruling over. This wasn't necessary, but he did it. And it's marked by three things. First of all, those he's ruling over, they recognize kinship. You see it there in verse 1, it says, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. They realize we're related to you. You're one of us. When we come into covenant with Jesus Christ, the same thing is recognized. We are your children. I'm your spiritual child. You are one of us. You're a man like me, and you're God, not like me. So we see the same uh, covenant that we have with Christ. Not only that, but we see deliverance. They say, recognize in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. So in times past, Lord, you are the one that rescued me, even though I recognize someone else as sovereign over my life. You are the one that was preserving me. And then we see not only the kinship and the deliverance, but the divine appointment. They recognized that Yahweh, Yahweh was the one that said to you, David, that you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. This is the first time that one of God's leaders is recognized as a shepherd of the people. And so we see these three elements involved when we come to Christ as well, and we anoint him and recognize him as king and sovereign in our life. This is similar to the covenant that we see when Christ said, this is the new covenant in my blood. My blood of the covenant is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So God, David graciously made a covenant to his people. Christ graciously makes a covenant with us. And then notice the first thing that David does, having been finally anointed king by the people, recognized not just by God, but by the people. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. So the Jebusites had inhabited a portion of Jerusalem. And verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And then David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack, quote, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So from that day forward, the Jebusites had said, even our, our lame and blind can fend off David. And David took insult to that forever that the Jebusites were referred to as the lame and the blind. And they said, we're not going to let the Jebusites in anymore. But they had taken a stronghold in Jerusalem, the highest hill, and it was called Zion. And the first thing that King David did after he was recognized as king in the land, he took Zion. Zion is symbolic throughout the wilderness wanderings as that is the promised land. And that imagery is repeated throughout the New Testament. The promised land that we wait for is Zion. And so we see in David's life, what in this last part where he's, the throne is claimed, we see the covenant made with his people, and when he finally takes the throne, he takes his people to Zion. And we await that same fate. But before we close this sermon, it should be noted that observations without action is worthless. When we've been entrusted with understanding from God's word, the purpose of it is spiritual development in our lives, which translates from head and heart 
hands and feet. God wants us to take what we've learned and apply it in our lives. Remember when Jesus preached the um, uh, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he follows it up immediately by saying, "Blessed are those who hear and do my word." He says, "The one who does my word is like the man who builds his house upon a rock." The one who hears my word and doesn't do it, he's like the one that builds his house upon the sand. So we want to make sure that we are doers of the word as well. And so I have three applications based on these observations from David's life and the parallel with Christ's um, reign as Messiah. And the first one is this. I would encourage you to engage your anointing. Remember Isaiah 59, 21 where it talked about, he said, I'm going to put my spirit in them. And my word will be in their mouth, and not just theirs, but their children and their children's children. That's spiritually you and I. And God has given us His Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, can we put that up there, Caleb? The verse? There it is. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith uh, by devotion. That's not the right verse. I'm going to have to turn it there. That is probably my fault, not Caleb's. All right, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Listen to this. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So just as David was anointed with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, so Jesus anoints us with the Holy Spirit. Not the same way that Jesus was anointed, but in our way. Christ anoints us with the Holy Spirit. We also see this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where it says, You have been anointed by the Holy One. And the anointing that you receive abides in you. So my encouragement to you is engage your anointing. You've been given the Holy Spirit for a purpose. And I think that the Holy Spirit is often misunderstood in the life of the believer. I think sometimes the Holy Spirit is treated like a piece of exercise equipment. How many people have ever spent money on a piece of exercise equipment? Maybe a treadmill, maybe a weight bench, maybe a squat rack. And all it became was an expensive clothing rack where you would put laundry on it or put boxes around it. And you think, well, I've got the equipment, so now I'm going to be strong or now I'm going to get fit. But not unless you use the equipment. I say, can you hand that to me real quick? This is a, a piece of equipment I got at the thrift store. Maybe, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. And it hooks on the door frame and you can do chin-ups with it. And uh, all my door frames are too thick in my house because it's an old house, and so it doesn't fit on any of my door frames. So I eventually tried every room in the house, wouldn't fit anywhere, so then I took it to my office. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do jumps during the day in my office. And guess where it sat for the next five years? Right behind the trash can in my office. And now it's in the back of my car. It's been sitting there for several months, and today I stand before you with clarity. I'm never going to do a chin-up on this thing. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So... Someone's either going to walk out of here with this. Evan, you can have it if you want. Anyone here, you can walk out, you can use it, or it's going to go in the dumpster after church. But I'm not going to use it. And it has zero effect in my life because I'm not engaged with it. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 
oftentimes people, uh, believers, think, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I don't understand why it's so hard for me to fight sin now. Shouldn't I not? I shouldn't have to fight sin anymore. Because I've got the Holy Spirit. It's not that you shouldn't have to fight sin anymore. It's now for the first time in your life, you're actually equipped to fight sin in your life. But you have to engage with the Holy Spirit. And let me just give you just a couple observations. Perhaps you would turn with me to the book of Ephesians. That's one spot. There's so You could preach a whole series on the Holy Spirit, but I just want to look at just a couple spots in Ephesians where you can see how to engage in the Holy Spirit in your life. Of course, I've heard it's been said that the Holy Spirit broods over this book. The Holy Spirit was the one who breathed through godly men and wrote this book, and he communicates to you through this book, but there are certain actions we can take or not take which will greater will more greatly increase our connection to the Holy Spirit, or it will more greatly distance ourselves from the Holy Spirit. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. And so here we see if we choose unity over division, we'll be growing closer to the Holy Spirit. If we allow this word to govern that unity, we'll be accessing more of the Holy Spirit in our church and in our lives. If we allow divisions, in our marriages, in our ministry opportunities, in our church, then we are distancing ourselves from the Holy Spirit. So unity over division. Another point of reference here in Ephesians is chapter 4 and verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So we have the surrounding context of how we use our mouth. We can tear people down or we can build them up. And in the middle of that context, it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How you speak determines how much access you're allowing the Holy Spirit to have in your life and how much you are accessing Him. So unity over the over division, edifying speech, that which builds people up. And then we see a third category, really the third, fourth, and fifth category in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So there we see sobriety. If you're not a sober person, if you if you um, utilize drink or drugs in a way that removes your sobriety, you definitely will not have access to the Holy Spirit during that time. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, and in that filling of the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Sobriety increases your access to the Holy Spirit. Worship increases your connection to the Holy Spirit. Worship in a church setting when others are hearing you worship. 
and you're addressing others in the church with your worship. And then finally it says, with that um, filling of the Spirit, we address one another, and also we give thanks always for everything to the God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have gratitude. Well, these are very five very simple, easy things that increases our connection to the Holy Spirit. When we choose unity, when we choose edifying speech, when we choose sobriety, when we worship with one another, and when we express gratitude, all governed by this word that the Spirit breathed out, we have the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Engage your anointing. And very quickly here, endure the interim. Just as David had that long 20 plus year period waiting for the throne to be taken, so we wait for Christ's return. And in that interim, we endure because he's building his church, because he's developing our holiness, and because he's exercising patience. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, he's not slack, he's not slow, but he's patient waiting that all may come to him. It's not willing that any should perish. Maybe there's someone in this room right now that God has not returned yet because he's waiting for you. He doesn't want to come back until you come to him because he does not want to send anyone to hell, but he has to do what he must for those that reject him. He's exercising patience. He's building his church. He's developing your personal holiness. So I encourage you to engage in your anointing, to endure this time of interim. Don't lose hope. He is coming back. And that's the third thing. Envision his return. Paul was waiting for it. We wait for it. One day, the sky will be peeled open. And there will be no more doubters. There will still be people that reject Christ, but there will be no one that doubts who he is. They'll either see him and love him, or they will see him and hate him, but no one will doubt who he is. When that day comes, then he will eventually take his throne after slaying his enemies. The question is, are you ready? When that day comes, when the trumpet sounds, for believers, when you envision his return, that motivates you to live in holiness. That motivates you to pursue sanctification. Maybe there's someone out there that's not saved today. Trust me, I assure you, this day will come. Christ will return where he will slay his enemies by the power of his mouth, and the redeemed he will gather to himself. Which side of that equation do you want to be?